morning, Trinity Church. It's good to see you this morning. Last week, we started this new rhythm where we have our announcements given before the service. And so during our offering time, uh, we had been accustomed to uh, somebody coming up during your offering and giving announcements and um, letting you know about some things going on. But we have changed that so that we can have an uninterrupted time of worship from the beginning, our call to worship, our confession, uh, then our assurance of pardon, uh, and then uh, our offering. And then during this time of offering, usually we'll have somebody playing or usually, you know, just playing some background music. The, the idea is that you would spend that time, yes, giving your offerings, but also preparing your heart. Okay, so if there's this dead space, if there's this silence, this is a good thing. We don't need constant noise all the time, okay? We don't always need something going on. It's okay to stop. It's okay to pause. I was letting it just linger there for a little bit because I know it made you feel awkward, and that's good. It's good to feel awkward. I'm, I'm very accustomed to feeling awkward, so we need to be silent and prepare our hearts. Usually we'll have some music, but if you don't have music, okay, if there's nobody playing, just take that time and think, uh, Prepare your heart, pray, and prepare yourself to hear uh, God's word. As we approach God's word, let me pray for us, if you'll join with me. Father, we thank you as we sing these songs and remember what you have done in your son, Jesus Christ. These songs have served to remind us to um, fan the flames that, quite frankly, we will confess to you. Uh, for some of us this morning, we, we feel very little. We wake up and we, we don't feel like going to meet with your people. We don't feel close to you. We have concerns and worries and disappointments in life. We have anxieties and fears, bills to pay, mouths to feed, relationships in flux, and we, we are so focused on all of those things and we feel nothing towards you and we come here wondering why, wondering what the point of everything is possibly. I pray that you would use this morning to, again, as we sing and as we hear your word, to enlarge our hearts, to thaw the coldness of our hearts, unstop our ears, clear out our ears so that we can hear, so we can be refreshed, we can be reminded. And Lord, for all of us who come this morning ready and expectant and anticipating, I pray that you would feed us with your word, that you would give us truth that we can sink our teeth into, that we can ground our hopes in, readjust our thinking, <laughs> remind us of what is real and true so that as we go from here, we will be reinvigorated. 
would be rekindled for the sake of your name. That as we go into our jobs and into our schools and to our neighborhoods, we would be ready to tell people of your glory and of who you are, of who your son is, and of the only safety that exists from judgment. I pray that you would do all this work for your glory and in your name we pray. Amen. So I told you last week we are going to cover today all of the account of Noah and his flood. So we're in Genesis 6. We're going to go from Genesis 6, verse 9, all the way through chapter 8. I told you last week you need to prepare, maybe do some squats or something. Get ready. But I'm not going to have you stand for all of that. I know you're disappointed. What we're going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a little bit of preface and then we're going to read through the text. I'm going to read through the text and give you some commentary as we go. We're going to walk through the story together. We're going to walk through the account, an account that many of you know very well. It, what, what astounded me actually as I was going through this this week is, is how much we add to the story in our thinking because of of stories we've heard or because of songs we've sung as kids or whatever, you know, we, we add a lot to this story when in fact the story is, is fairly straightforward, fairly simple and doesn't have all the details that we add into it. I want to give you a word concerning the flood story before we jump in, okay? Uh, as many of you know, maybe some of you don't know this, maybe you're, maybe you're, uh, not, not in the know on this, but th- this is one of those stories that when, when uh, Christian kids, quote-unquote Christian kids, go to secular university, this, this, this is one of those stories that godless, godless atheist professors use to kind of blow up the faith or blow up the faith of uh, unsuspecting Christian young people, okay? And it shouldn't. But one of the things that is talked about often is the existence of several other ancient flood stories. In fact, there are many ancient stories of a flood that parallel the biblical account of Noah and his flood. Each has their own hero and has the different uh, circumstances surrounding the flood. And there's definitely overlap. We don't have to be afraid of that. Uh, the overlap between the stories, the ancient stories, and this one. There also exists significant differences between those stories and this one. For instance, just to give you one example of differences, in the pagan flood stories, the gods, plural, the gods are angry at man and send a flood because man makes too much noise. They don't like all the noise coming from earth, so they want to get rid of man. Also in those accounts, the heroes draw most of the attention. You see how heroic they are, and a lot of attention is given to the building of the boat. And that receives a lot of detail, as well as the hero's response to what's going on outside of the boat. The biblical story, by contrast, though, is very straightforward, as I just said, lacks a lot of the detail. Here's what's interesting. The, the, the Noah and the flood story lacks a lot of the detail that you and I want, right? 
We want to know how long did it take for him to build the boat? What did it look like for all the animals to get in there? What did what did it feel like for Noah and all of those inside the ark? What did they feel as death was going on outside the boat? The biblical story doesn't tell us any of those details. And this should, this should be important for us to, to note. It's important for us to note that the story does not give us these details. This is not a story seeking to entertain us. Do you know the Bible isn't for your entertainment? I think sometimes that's how the Bible is used, even by preachers. We want to entertain you with the Bible. We want to keep your interest going. Well, the Bible's not interested in entertaining you or building a hero out of Noah. Very simply, the reason these other pagan accounts exist, it's very simple. Why, why do you think that all these pagan cultures have a flood story? Because a flood happened. They have a flood story because a flood happened. And they're giving their spin on that story. Their pagan, godless spin to the story. It's that simple. And once again, by contrasting the biblical account to those stories, we learn the truth about who God is, what God is doing with man. That leads me to another point. <clears throat> I, just, I just said this. We don't use this story to entertain or satisfy our curious appetites. So there, there have been a lot of movie adaptations of Noah and the flood. There have been a lot of artistic depictions of Noah and the flood, medieval artistic depictions and, and in fact, we get a lot of our idea about knowing the flood. You, you, we don't realize how much this is the case. We fill in our understanding of the Bible with what we see in movies and what we see in artistic depictions. We fill in the gaps. And, and then we think we know the biblical story. Oh yeah, I know Noah and the flood. But we really don't. What we're familiar with is something we've added and, and people always joke with me about this, and I get it, okay, I get it, you can joke with me about this. I even, had, I even had a student one time who took a cucumber and a tomato and drew faces on them and put them on my desk, you know, up in front, because they know how much I hate VeggieTales. And it's funny, haha, he hates VeggieTales, he's just big, big old curmudgeon. That guy doesn't like kids at all. Did you know, I actually have people that tell me I don't like kids. I'm not kidding. People tell me I don't like kids because I, I'm not into VeggieTales and things like that. I have eight children, people. And I love them. I like them all. They like me. It's like, I'm the kid guy. You should see me at home. I'm a complete idiot around my kids. But, but I don't want to mix up the story. I, I don't think it's funny that we add to the story of Scripture. And this actually hurts us in our understanding. We want to stick to what the story uh, says. And, and then that leads me to the third point. This is not a children's story. Noah and the ark is not a children's story. In fact, it, it, it exposes the depth of our biblical illiteracy when we paint children's hallways with a boat that has smiling animals coming out of it, kind of bebopping along on the top of the waters. This is not a children's story. 
There's nobody smiling in this story. There's nothing happy going on in this story. In fact, much of Scripture is not happy. We hurt Scripture when we try to soften it. I I, I call it G-rating the Bible. When we work to G-rate Scripture to make it appropriate to our modern sensitivities, we actually hurt the Bible in what it's saying. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that you should get into the gory details. Listen, it's, it's fascinating. The Bible doesn't get into the gory details. Did you know that? Here, here in a story about horrific death, the Bible's not interested in sharing with you all the horrific details of the death. It's not trying, again, it's not trying to entertain you or satisfy your appetites. We should tell this story to our children, but we should not G-rate it. We should not soften it. I find it interesting. God told the people of Israel, what did he tell them in Deuteronomy? Take this and teach it to your children. But in our churches, we say, oh, we can't, I mean, we can't tell all all the Bible to our children. There's a lot of really serious adult stuff in there. No, God said, teach it to your children. Do we know better than God? Do Do we think we know better than God does? Teach this to your children. Teach it appropriately to your children. Teach what the Bible teaches to your children. They need to know this. This story is extremely important. For in the account of Noah and the flood, we have God's first major act of salvation. Noah and the flood is God's first major act of salvation. And so... Here in the story of Noah and the flood, in the account of Noah and the flood, we have a template laid down for us of what God's salvation looks like. This is the template. It sets the trajectory. This is how the Bible works. The Bible is one entire story, all unified. And so this template will be repeated over and over and over and over again. God is showing you through Noah and the flood how he saves. I know that we all think the account of the flood is about judgment. We saw that last week. It surely does involve judgment. Remember last week what we talked about? Why God judges the earth in a flood? The justification for the flood? How could God who is so loving and so good, how can God bring such a horrific judgment upon the earth? Well, first of all, God is God. It is his earth. He does all that he pleases. But God is not capricious or unfair. He never acts on a whim. He's never out of balance. He doesn't have a bad day. Did you know that? God doesn't have a bad day. See, you you and I can't relate to that because you and I have bad days all the time. But God never has a bad day. He's not subject to like passions. So what would make God so angry with mankind that he would bring about such a judgment? He saw, this is in chapter 6, he saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
Again, we must let that sit in our mind. This is the, this is the condition of mankind. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So what, what would it say about God if he didn't do anything? What would it say about God if he didn't act to, to judge man's condition? What should God do? God is going to blot out man from the face of the earth. And not only man, but all living things that tread upon the earth. Man has defiled the earth. And we learn in this account that as it goes for man, so it goes for all of life. So it goes for all of the earth. Man and the earth is completely, they're completely tied together, okay? They're not separate. Man's corruption of the earth has brought judgment upon the, uh, upon the entire earth and all the living creatures. So the account of the flood definitely involves this judgment. But it is, in fact, an account of God's salvation. We get a hint of this in verse 8, which, again, we looked at last week. After the Lord says he's going to wipe out mankind, the text then says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The flood account then is about God keeping his promise from Genesis three fifteen that there will be a seed of the woman who will put an end to sin and death. In the age of the flood, in the face of man's wickedness, in the fa- face of man's corruption of the earth, it seems like that promise is all but lost. But Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, and God is going to save and keep his promises of salvation through this man, Noah. So in the flood narrative, we have this template of salvation laid down. I want to give you that template, but before I do that, before I give you that template, I want to read through the story, okay? We're going to read through the story together, and as I read through, I'm going to stop here and there and give brief commentary, all right? Brief commentary. We're going to walk through the whole story. So we're, we're, we're reading through it. This is, not, this is like not really part of the sermon. This is us reading. And if we, if we get nothing else today, we're going to read through the story of Noah and the flood, and it's going to be well worth our time, okay? It's going to be good. If we were sitting around in my living room, I would give voices and all that, and we would walk through the story and give it that emotion. But I hope this is helpful for you as we read through the story. Let's start there in verse number 9. Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Okay, remember, the book of Genesis is divided around Toledot. These are the generations. So here we have a new section. These are the generations of Noah. So it's giving you the genealogy of Noah, or at least the beginning of it. It's going to be interrupted by narrative here. But he says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. This is the first, this is the first use of the word righteous in Scripture. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Who's that connected to? Enoch. Remember, Enoch walked with God. That pictured Adam and Adam's uh, communion in Eden with God. 
the communion that was lost in Adam's sin. But Enoch walked with God and showed that communion with God could still be had and therefore life could still be had with God. And now Noah walks with God. So it's continued through Noah. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And you want to make note of them? Scripture mentions them because they're going to become important here shortly. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, look at the next verse. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, maybe you don't see it right away, but if you stop and think about it, what does that verse right there sound like? And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That is contrasted with what happens at the end of chapter 1. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But now, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Why was it corrupt? For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. What had corrupted their way? Well, we see in the previous statement, the earth was filled with violence. So God told Adam, I want you to fill the earth with my image. God created all things very good. He told Adam, fill the earth with my image. But now man has corrupted the earth, and the earth is not filled with his image. It is filled with violence. Now, just imagine that for a second. Filled with violence. There are no governments yet. There are no laws yet. There is only violence. No safety. Man is killing one another. Just like Cain killed Abel, the earth is filled with this violence. Cain's line is overwhelming the earth with violence. So, so we see mankind is going to wipe themselves off the face of the earth. This is very important. When, when, when the godless professor says, how could God, you say God is loving, but how could God work such a horrific judgment against mankind, against innocent mankind, right? Well, look at the text. Look at what the text is saying. The earth was filled with violence. Mankind is going to wipe itself off the face of the earth if God doesn't act. And so, in order to save mankind, God intervenes. And God said to Noah, look at it there, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For, because the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay, so man has ruined the earth. So I am going to complete that destruction of the earth. Noah, he says, make yourself an ark. Now, important word there, ark. There's only one other place that that exact word is used, the ark. Do you know what that is? It's not the ark of the covenant. That's a different word, okay? Moses. 
Moses, when he's a little baby, he is put in a basket. That basket is called an ark. In fact, the parallels between these little vessels, right, are purposeful. The ark is the vessel of deliverance, the vessel of salvation. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Okay, so God gives the instructions for the building of the ark. And again, what is lacking here is all the details. I, I know there's an there's a ark encounter out of, outside of Louisville, Kentucky, okay? Don't ask me if, hey, did you know about the, they built an ark outside. Yes, I know very well. Uh, in fact, I know the guy who, who ran the fundraising for the ark encounter. So I know a lot of people involved in the building of the ark encounter. If you want to go to Louisville, I'm not going to pop your bubble, okay? If you want to go to Louisville and see the ark, that's great. But it doesn't actually tell us that much about how the ark was constructed. We, we see the length, we see the width, we see the depth. That's what we see. We see that there was some kind of roof, it was probably made out of animal skins, and it was supposed to be a, a cubit above. But they're not really sure, Hebrew scholars are not really even sure what that means, okay? So we know that it was 300 cubits long, cubits is about 18 inches, Okay, so quick math here. All you have to do to figure out what that is in feet is take the number in cubits and then take half that number and add it to it. So 300 cubits is 300 plus half, 150 is 450 feet. 50 cubits, half of 50 is 25, is 75 feet. So it's 450 feet long, a football field and a half. It's 75 feet wide and it's... 30 cubits high, which is about 45 feet high. It's about four stories tall. It's a big boat. By modern standards, it's as big as a, a medium-sized cargo ship. In ancient standards, it's humongous. It's monstrous. It's a big boat. But that's all we're given. Now, again, and, and we could geek out on all this kind of stuff. There are only two, there are only two structures given in the Old Testament it, with instructions to build, right? The ark built by Noah and then the tabernacle or the temple. And there, there's a lot of parallels between them. They are seen as the place of safety, is the place where God's people dwell in safety. Okay? This is not by accident. So the ark represents this place of safety, this sanctuary. Look at the next statement. This is important. Look at verse 18. But I will, so all the earth is going to die. All that's on the earth will die. But verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. 
And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of everything, every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Now notice again, verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. We're going to return to that in just a moment. But here you have the first occurrence of the word for covenant. The first occurrence of the word for covenant. But I will establish my covenant with you. There's a contrast here. All that is living on the earth will will die, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. And you shall come into the ark, into the place of safety. So then God tells them to take two of every kind and also take food enough for everything to eat. Noah did this, verse 22, he did all that God commanded him. And you see this refrain a few more times, that Noah is obedient. Noah does all that God commanded him to do. So we see that Noah trusts the word of Yahweh. And Noah obeys because he has faith. Then the Lord said to Noah, starting in chapter 7, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate. So this has led people to be a little confused. He's giving him further instruction. He's supposed to take two of every kind, right? Two of every animal, two of every kind. But he says of the clean animals, you should take seven pairs male and female. Well, why? We're going to find out in the next chapter or the next section why. Because he is going to offer sacrifices on the other side of the flood. And these clean animals are going to be used for those sacrifices. He says, in a pair of the animals that are not clean. So, seven pairs of every clean animal and just one pair of every unclean animal. The male and his mate. Seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also. Again, they're going to be used for sacrifice. Male and female to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth. Forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. So you hear, here you see the 40 days and 40 nights. Again, this is an important, you know, uh, this is important note, 40 days and 40 nights. This is uh, significant for the testing and the trial, trial of God's people. All the way through scripture, we see that God's people are tested through sets of 40, 40 days, 40 nights. This is symbolic of God's testing of his people. So he tells, he tells Noah, take seven pairs of the clean animals and a pair of the unclean animals and then seven pairs of the birds of heavens, male and female as well. And I'm going to send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And Noah did all that the Lord God had commanded him. There's that refrain again. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. So there it tells you how old he was. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. 
of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day. Now, the, the, the specificity here is very, uh, very obvious, isn't it? He's giving you the exact day. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day. So this is the historical, this is historically true, giving it historical location. On that day, look at what it says, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now this is important to note what's going on here. Remember in creation, God had created the sky by separating the waters from the waters. You remember that that back in Genesis 1? He'd separated the waters underneath from the waters above. And then he separates the waters on earth from one another, creates land. Here in this passage, we see that being reversed. So the waters below, they burst forth, covering the land, and the windows of heaven, that ceiling, right, in the ancient mind that's keeping the waters back up, up, up above, that ceiling is opened. The windows of heaven, heavens are opened, and the rains that are above, the waters that are above, and the waters below, they become one again. That sky that was created in Genesis 1, that is erased. Okay? The fountains of the great deep burst forth. The windows of heaven were opened. The rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. Do you guys, do you notice the similarity again to Genesis 1? It seems like the focus of the writer here is to, to draw your attention back, to remind you of Genesis 1. You have the waters collapsing, and you have this emphasis on the beast according to their kinds going into the ark. That's what the writer wants to draw your attention to. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. Again, Noah did what God had told him to do. And the Lord shut him in. Verse 16 of chapter 7 there. And the Lord shut him in. The Lord is the one who saves. The Lord is the one who seals the boat. The Lord is the one who gives the instructions. The Lord is the one who gives the blueprint for the ark, for safety. The Lord is the one who saves. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Now, 
Scripture tells us this was a global flood. Why? Because it covers all the mountains. And the face of the earth is covered again with the waters. Again, picturing that reversal of creation. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. How's, how, how much is 15 cubits? Remember, 15 the number and then half, 22 and a half feet. So above the mountains, 22 and a half feet. Very specific, right? Very, very specific. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Now, you, I didn't mention it as I, was, as I was going, but you have really cool literary symmetry here. They waited for seven days once. Then they waited for seven days again in the text. Then there were 40 days of rain. So seven, seven, 40. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150. So you have seven, seven, 40, 150. And then this comment is made, but God remembered Noah. And in this, we have the center of the story. I don't know if you know what a chiasm is, but it's, it's called a chiasm because it's half of the Greek letter key, and it looks, like a, it looks like half of an X. Okay, so a chiasm comes down to the center and then works its way out like this, and the center of that chiasm, literarily, is kind of the point or kind of the crux of the story. But God remember Noah is the center of that chiasm. The easiest way to see that chiasm is those numbers, 7, 7, 40, 150. Because after this statement, it's going to be 150, and then 40, and then 7, and then 7. Again, and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's okay. That's all right. Just trust me. It's a, it's a chiasm, and this is the point of the story, okay? God remembered Noah. Does this mean that God had forgotten Noah? No, Seth Ryman did a good job in his liturgy to, to kind of bring this out. When we talk about God remembering, this is God enacting his salvation, his salvation, his salvific promises. God remembers his covenant. It's not that God forgets his covenant. It's like, oh, oh, that's right. I was going to save mankind. No, he is acting upon his promises. He remembers Noah. So even, even literarily here, we have Noah here. Uh, he, he's enclosed in this text. He is right here in the middle. And up to this point, we've had the waters of the flood. We've had this crescendo up. Noah's in the middle. And now we're going to have the working out of this flood, the receding of the waters. Noah right there, safely preserved by the knowledge of the Lord. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Again, remember Genesis 1. The spirit, same word, ruach, same word, the spirit, the wind 
hovered over the waters. And this, this wind, this spirit is what separates the waters. The God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. So this is meant to, this is meant to bring to remembrance Genesis 1 and that preface of creation. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. So we have the sky reappear and the earth began to have the water subside. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated in the seventh month. On the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. That word rest is a play on Noah's name. Remember, Noah was the one who was going to bring rest to the earth. And now this boat has rested on Mount Ararat. The, the, the rest has come. Many people think that the mountains of Ararat are there where the Garden of Eden was originally established. And so you have this boat come back to rest back at the beginning, back where it all started. And it's going to start over again. Again, notice the specificity of this day, the seventh month, 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest. The waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So now we have the tops of the mountains being seen. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the wind of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. So it doesn't come back. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. Now, it, it's obvious Noah can't see what's going on outside, okay? Because he sends forth an, an animal. He sends forth a dove to see if the waters have decreased enough, right? He can't see. He can't look. So, so the pictures of these windows in the side of the ark where the people are looking out, that's, they don't exist, okay? He can't see out. He has to send forth a dove, and the dove finds no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. There you have that symmetry again. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. The dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So... Again, the birds, the, the birds of the heavens are returned to the heavens. You have, again, calling back Genesis 1. You have the spirit opening up the, or, or causing the waters to recede. You have the sky reappearing. You have now the birds filling the heavens. You have a renewal of that creation. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. So 601st year and first, in the first month, the first day of the month. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. So, the earth had completely dried by the second month on the 27th day of the month. The earth had dried out. When did they go in? If you look back, it's the second month, it's the second month on the 17th day of the month. Okay. So how many, how many days is that all together? If you figure lunar calendar versus solar calendar and all that. All it comes down to is 365 days. They are in the ark 365 days, one whole year. Then God said to Noah, 
Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is, on, that is with you of flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Again, you have a renewal of that Genesis 1 commission, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creepy thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma... So Noah's making sacrifices and the Lord is pleased with these sacrifices. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God gives his promise that as long as the seasons, as long as the earth exists, the seasons will continue. And he will not again curse the ground because of man. We see here that a sacrifice, a pleasing sacrifice given to the Lord turns away his wrath. Now next week we're going to start there at the end of chapter 8 and go through chapter 9 and talk about that a little bit more. As I told you before, this story... Okay, we went through that pretty quick and just with brief commentary. This story gives us the template of salvation, the biblical template of salvation. I want to give you three patterns it gives us, three patterns that this template provides for us in, in understanding the Bible and understanding the salvation that God has worked for his people. Pattern number one, God is saving through judgment. What Noah and the ark and the flood teaches us, and we will see this pattern repeated throughout the Bible. God is saving through judgment. Now, it seems like a simple point, but we need to make it. If, if God saves, if God is only a saving God, and he is not a judging God, then what is he saving from? If God is only a saving God and not a judging God, then what is he saving from? There's no need for salvation. His salvation now is meaningless without judgment. One author whom I highly respect says that the center of the biblical storyline is just this. Get it? And I think think this is the center of the biblical storyline. God's glory is accomplished. God's glory is accomplished in salvation through judgment. God's glory in salvation through judgment. What do we learn here in the account of Noah and the flood? That God is a saving God and he is a judging God. God's glory then is a saving and judging glory. He is not one or the other. He is both in perfect harmony. Why is this important? God's glory is accomplished through both saving and judging. 
His glory is accomplished through the salvation of his people against the backdrop of his judgment. And this reality, listen to this, this reality of judgment should keep us from thinking of God in purely sentimental ways. People, people have a tendency to, to think of God in purely sentimental ways as a grandfatherly figure, a buddy in heaven who will just let things go and let things pass. And I know you're a mess, but it's all right. I love you anyway, kind of God. No, God is a judging God. But the reality of salvation should likewise keep us from thinking of God as merely a terrifying, vengeful judge. You see, we need, we need to understand God in both ways. Only by understanding him as a judging God do we see his salvation. Only in understanding his salvation do we see the purpose of his judgment. The judgment of the flood is horrific. Terrific. Everything. Did you see the, the note? Everything that is living dies. But it is justified. It is fitting. The horrific nature and extent of the judgment should cause us to see the horror of sin and what it does. But in the midst of all this horror and death, God saves in power. God is the one, again, who warns Noah of the wrath to come. God is the one who provides the dimensions of the ark of salvation. God is the one who shuts them in with his own hand. God is the one who saves. He is a saving God. And in fact, the salvation through judgment is what proves who his people are. He is saving us through judgment. This salvation through judgment becomes the pattern for the rest of Scripture. If you think about it, you'll see it. You'll see this pattern all the way through Scripture. When God saves his people from Egypt, what does this mean for Pharaoh? Judgment. When God comes to the aid of his servant David and saves him from the giant, what does it mean for the giant? Judgment. We could go on and on. We find this in every book of the Bible. Those who flee to him will be saved. Those who do not fear him will be judged. And this pattern of salvation through judgment culminates in Christ. It is Christ who saves by bearing our judgment. We are saved through judgment. Isaiah 53, that familiar text, surely... He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that bear uh, before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus is judged for our sin and through his judgment, the judgment that he bore, we are saved. So we see this pattern. This is how we understand the biblical storyline. Salvation is accomplished through judgment. Sin is serious. God's salvation is costly. It's not cheap. Salvation through judgment. Pattern number two. God saves through judgment. Pattern number two. God is saving his covenant partners. I know time is running out. I've got to go quickly. God is saving his covenant partners. The account of Noah and the flood contains the first use, I told you that already, of this very important word, barit, or covenant. We're going to talk about the covenant next week, okay? So if you feel like I skip over a lot of this about the covenant, we, did, we need to talk more about the covenant. We're going to talk about it next week. The Lord tells Noah that in the midst of this judgment upon the earth, he's going to establish his covenant with Noah. Covenant. The covenant is a relationship formed between two parties through solemn promises and oaths requiring obligations and responsibilities to be performed, usually requiring severe penalty if failed in those obligations and responsibilities. God's relationship to his people is formed in covenant. It's extremely important that you understand the word covenant. When it says here in verse 18 that he establishes his covenant with Noah, this, this, is, this phrase is used when, when the word for covenant is used to, to mean affirmation of an already existing covenant. Not to make a new one. In other words, he's telling Noah, I'm going to affirm my covenant with you. I'm not making a new covenant with you, Noah. I'm establishing an already existing covenant. In other words, God is telling Noah that he's going to affirm with Noah a covenant that has already been made. And who has God made a covenant with? Already in scripture to this point. Even though we don't see the word covenant, who has he made a covenant with? Adam. The answer can only be Adam. Again, Adam was made as God's image bearer to fill the earth. Adam was God's son king. Adam was to live in covenant with Yahweh. But Adam and Eve were not faithful to that covenant. They did not trust and obey. They did not walk righteously and blamelessly. They forsook communion with God. And this is what Noah is. Noah walks righteously and blamelessly. He walks with God. So what do we see in this, in this passage? Noah is serving as the ideal covenant partner with Yahweh. The Lord is going to reestablish or affirm the Adamic covenant with Noah. Noah then is the new Adam. Noah becomes Adam. And in Noah's description, we see a description of what an ideal covenant partner should look like. So who is God saving? He's saving his covenant partners. He's saving those he's in covenant with. His faithful covenant partners, those characterized by righteousness and blamelessness. Psalm 15 says this. 
O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. So God is saving those who walk blamelessly and righteously. He is saving those he, he is in communion with. He's saving those who trust in his word and obey his voice. So important. As God's people, we hear his voice and we respond in trust and obedience. So Noah gives the model for an ideal covenant partner. Hebrews 11 tells us this. Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah, then, is the ideal covenant partner, and he is the representative head of his people. The focus of Scripture... From here forward, the entire storyline of God's redemptive purposes will focus on those who are his covenant partners and their representative heads. We're going to see, though, in the next chapter that Noah is prone to the same, the same sin as Adam. He is not the one who will bring rest to the earth. But, and you know this, you know where we're going with this already, right? There is one who is a faithful covenant partner. There is one who is the true and righteous one, the one who walks blamelessly in the law, the one who is in perfect communion with the Father, the one who trusts and obeys, the one who does everything his Father demands and asks. Jesus is the perfect covenant-keeping partner. He is the faithful and obedient one unto death, it says. And Jesus, he is our head. He is our representative. There is only one ark of safety. There's only one ark of safety from the judgment of God, and it is Christ himself. Christ is our ark of safety. You know, I mentioned a minute ago about the sanctuary, the ark and the temple being a picture of a sanctuary. Churches used to be built with this in mind. Churches would build, they would, they would actually build this vaulted ceiling with exposed timbers, trusses, block timber that would, that would row the ceiling, right? And it, it, was, picture, it was pictured like you were inside a boat, inside an ark. Because there, as the people of God, inside his church, inside his people, you are in safety. The sanctuary. That's why I think this is why it was called the sanctuary. The place of safety. The church, the gathered people of God in Christ. This is our safe place. There's only one safe place, and it is in Christ. Several verse references that I'll send you out later. Pattern number three, and I, I know time's up. We've got to be done. But let's look at pattern number three real quick. So pattern one, God is saving through judgment. Pattern two, he is saving his covenant partners. In pattern three, we see that God's salvation results in a new creation. The flood narrative, the flood narrative is an uncreation it is the reversal of creation. God is uncreating the earth. And, and that's what the text clearly shows. 
through the waters collapsing, through the flood coming upon the earth, creation, the earth is being uncreated. And then God is recreating. He's making a new creation. The result of God's salvation is a new creation. Noah and his household walk out on dry land to begin again. This is the pattern. The the exodus. The waters, right, are held back and they go across on dry land. And the waters collapse in judgment upon their enemies. They are saved through judgment. As they're going into the land with Joshua, the waters part again. They walk across on dry ground. Again, picturing this new creation, this new beginning in the land that God has given to his people, his covenant partners. And and this is the picture of salvation. Jesus comes and he goes through the waters of baptism. He experiences the baptism waters of death. And then he rises again to a new creation. And it's that resurrection that creates for us a new life, a new creation, a new people, a new covenant people. And what are we destined for? We are destined for a new heavens and a new earth. This is where we're going. I'll close with this. Listen, listen to 2 Peter. There's so much more here, right? 2 Peter. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. These are those who oppose the truth. They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Judgment's coming. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 11, I'll skip down to verse 11 here in 2 Peter 3. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, since this earth is headed for judgment, judgment of fire, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people are you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The story of Noah and the flood is our story. It is the story of every generation of God's people. God is judging the world because of sin. But he is saving his people, his covenant people, through that judgment. And he is saving them for a new heavens, a new earth, a new creation. And you and I are to live in light of that new creation today. So the appeal is simply this. If you claim to be a covenant partner with Yahweh, if you, if you claim to be a covenant partner with God through Christ, 
you should be seeking to live in righteousness and holiness and blamelessness in this present world. That's what you're called to. If Christ has saved you, if you are a covenant partner with the Lord, with God, through Christ, you are called to righteousness and holiness. You're called to trust and obedience. You're called to live in faith and obedience. The second appeal is to those of you who are heading towards judgment. You know, we're talking to a group this large. There are people all over this, this audience this morning who are headed towards judgment. Do you think that judgment is not coming merely because God is patient? Those in the days of Noah didn't think judgment was coming. And once that ark was closed, there was no more hope for them. Judgment is coming. The only ark of safety is in Christ. Come to Christ. Turn from your sin. Trust in his death and resurrection for your safety. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this account of Noah and the flood. We thank you for this pattern set out in scripture so clearly that we see and we can follow all the way through the Bible. I pray that you would give us eyes to see better equipped to read our Bibles. But I pray with this we would see the seriousness and the gravity and the surety of judgment, that we would see again afresh the salvation that you have accomplished for us in our ark of safety, Jesus. And that this would compel us and cause us to live as faithful covenant partners, not not because we've gain this relationship through our efforts. No, but because you have given it to us by grace, this costly grace that should compel us and cause us to want to live for your glory. And I pray for all of those here who do not know Christ as Savior. They are standing on their own merits or they're standing on their own intelligence or they're standing on their own whatever. I pray that you would humble them. They would come to the end of themselves today and realize that judgment is sure and it is coming. And the only way of safety is through Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name for your sake. Amen.